according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 1 this evening. Although I mentioned in prayer meeting, I was tempted to go back to Proverbs 12 since it was so much fun this morning. But uh, no, no, can't do that. Philippians chapter 1. To the saints, including the overseers and the deacons. So there's a lot of uh, doctrine we've got to unpack out of uh, just that one verse right there. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside our distractions, to calm our thinking, to provide the stability that His Word provides. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing that we have this evening to assemble together. I thank You for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth who leads us into Your truth. Father, I pray that we would be humble to receive it, that, uh, Father, we would have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to understand. Thank you for Philippians. So many powerful doctrines in this book. I'm uh, I'm eager to get to each one of them. I'm I'm eager to see the growth, the benefit, the blessings that are going to come to each one of us individually, but to uh, Austin Bible Church collectively as a flock, Father. We are going to be a stronger congregation because of the equipping that comes in the book of Philippians. And I just want to thank you for that as well. Bless our time tonight. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we can start with some uh, question and answer time. I actually forgot to load up my Bible software, so let me get that up and running. And uh, we can lead off the questions with, uh, where's the microphone? On the left, okay. Who would like to have our lead off question for tonight? Maybe not. Wow. Remember, there's no Q&A next week, so if you want to get it in, you got to get it in tonight. I'm sorry? I guess, yeah, I haven't made any waves yet. So. All right, well, if there's no questions, then we will proceed straight to Philippians. Fair enough. All right, Philippians chapter 1. Kind of give you the outline here for the chapter, give you an idea of where we're going with it. We're going to take verses 1 and 2 as our opening development, uh, the salutation itself. Uh, a lot of times I don't give the salutation a separate development. I just include it in the opening portion of the chapter. Uh, in this case, though, I want to handle a salutation all by itself because it's so significant in the way that it delineates the saints and the overseers and the deacons. So uh, Also the way that it avoids Paul's apostolic office. It's rare that, uh, that he's not defending his apostolic office in his correspondence, and yet here's an example of that. So Philippians opens with a standard yet significant salutation, avoiding... Paul's own apostolic office, yet spotlighting the overseer and deacon offices of every local church. And we're going to have to break it down for you. What is an office? Is, it, is that the same thing as a gift? Is it a ministry? Is it an effect? What is, what is an office? Because we spent all that time in Corinthians teaching gifts, ministries, and effects. How does office fit into that? What are we talking about with offices anyway? Okay. Then the three remaining sections of chapter 1 can be titled with marvelous memory verses. And so 
After the salutation, we'll have three more developments, a total of four developments uh, here in this first chapter. There's a thanksgiving and prayer section in verses 3 through 11. And this centers on the Bible verse, the memory verse, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's such a, it's a marvelous verse to memorize. It's a powerful truth. We have individual applications that we make, and usually that's how it's thought of on an individual basis. But ultimately, the context of this chapter is a corporate basis. He who began a good work in y'all uh, as an assembly, as a, as a Bible church, the, the flock, the saints, the overseers, and the deacons at Philippi. Uh, he began a good work in them collectively as a body, and he will perfect it. Uh, that, that local church, I believe every local church, has a destiny to fulfill uh, from the time it's planted to the time its lampstand is removed. And uh, Jesus Christ is in charge of that as the head of the church. So we'll have some studies there connected to that. I remember when Ralph taught this years ago. Philippians was the book Ralph Braun was teaching when I first visited Austin Bible Church in 1990. And so I'm just a, I'm a young soldier, an MP from Fort Hood driving down, 21 years old. And, uh, and here's Pastor Ralph and he's teaching Philippians. And I'll never forget it. The the, the strong start, the follow through, and the, and the victorious finish that he taught. You know, or the right start, follow through, and strong finish is how he taught it. And, uh, and a lot of that came from this verse right here. He who began a good work in you. And then the second section, verses 12 through 18, um, I call this the occasion for writing section. And it's common to many epistles. Um, an author will explain why he's writing, you know. Uh, you, you know, one of those, you might be surprised to hear from me things, but here, <laughs> here's why I'm writing. Uh, the occasion for writing section centers on my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And as verse 12 here, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So he's not complaining. And whatever they've heard and whatever the reports are that, that motivated them to, to send Epaphroditus down with the funds that he brought, uh, that, that they shouldn't uh, weep for him. They shouldn't be sorry for him. They shouldn't feel bad about where he is. He, Paul's rejoicing in where he is. And he wants them to know that. And he wants them to know that, that, uh, that they can have the same thing, mastery of the circumstances and details of life. Okay, And uh, whatever the circumstances are, God works in it for the greater progress of his eternal plan. And we can uh, rejoice in that. And then finally, the conclusion of the chapter, verses 19 through 30, the chapter concludes with an application, both for Paul himself personally, as well as for the Philippians to live as Christ and to die as gain. And uh, this is uh, obviously it's a personal matter when you're on death row and you don't know what you're, or you're not on death row, but he's waiting his sentence, not knowing if he's going to get put on death row, uh, if he's going to be executed uh, or if he's going to be released. And, uh, and he doesn't know. And honestly, not only does he not know, he doesn't know what to root for. He's not sure what to, what to hope for, what to dream about, because uh, he sees the, the pluses each way, that to live as Christ and to die as gain. And uh, we need to have that lesson. And I think it's vital that we don't wait until we're in that deathbed aspect. We should have that, that motivation throughout our life, to live is Christ. And it's not like it's a consolation thing that, oh, well, if I die, I'm going to go to heaven. That only centers on the today is gain part, right? Uh, and, and I think too many believers, Christians who should know better, all they pay attention to is the second part of that verse, to die is gain, to die is gain. And, and that just kind of makes Christianity a, 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 like a fire insurance policy or something, you know. They're not going to go to hell when they die, so to die is gain. But they've totally ignored the first part of it, that to live is Christ. And so that day by day as we're living, it's, it's Christ, not us. 
see, which is a great follow-up to the Galatians doctrine that we saw in that regard there as well, Galatians 2.20. So those are the sections, all right? And we'll handle each one of them in turn. For tonight, though, we're still dealing with the salutations, the salutations to saints, overseers, and deacons. And I tried everything I could to turn overseers and deacons into S-words, and I just couldn't do it. Um, the seer-overers just looked bad. And uh, the servants, uh, yeah, I knew about servants, because deacons can be servants, uh, but the seer-overers, uh, just I, I couldn't bring myself to do it and subject it to the ridicule. Supervisors, okay, there we go. In any event, this is the salutation. So Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. This is one of six Pauline epistles co-authored by Timothy. I think too often the, the and Timothy gets ignored or gets thrown away. It's kind of a useless thing. And, and, and there are authors, there are, there are theologians actually that dispute the concept of co-authorship anyway. And uh, they say, come on, it was really Paul's letter. It was just a courtesy tacking Timothy's name on there just because whatever. It More than a courtesy, there is a definite impact in Timothy's co-authorship. There is a distinction to be found. And I think it's a matter of... of, of uh, extreme significance. The Holy Spirit doesn't just throw words out there for no reason. All right, It says Paul and Timothy, and the, the role of Timothy in these things I think is important. So recognizing his impact here, the six epistles that, are, that he is listed as a co-author or co-sender, including 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon, right? That's the canonical order. That's as you flip pages in the New Testament, that's the canonical order that those books appear in. Uh, put it in chronological order, it's 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and then I, I believe it's Philippians right after that, okay? Philippians, then Phile- uh, Colossians and Philemon, then 2 Corinthians last of all, all right? 2 Corinthians last of all. Now, the seven that he did not co-author, Timothy is still connected to six of them, and um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this again because we dealt with this the last time, or a week ago tonight when we looked at this. He's the personal recipient for two of them, obviously, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He's not a co-author of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. They were written to him, so that makes sense. Um, but he's a child, and he's a childhood recipient of Galatians. We don't often think about that, but the Galatian region is where he's from. And so the first missionary journey, when Paul passed through there, Timothy was an eyewitness of that. In, uh, in 48, 49 A.D., Timothy's an eyewitness of that, all right? I guesstimate he was born in, in 40, all right? And so here's a nine-year-old kid watching this, and he's, he's there with his mom and his grandmother. They're both believers, and Paul and Barnabas came through on, on, that, sec- on that first missionary journey, and Timothy was an eyewitness of all of that. That's, that's no question on that. And so then when the letter of Galatians gets written in 49, the letter of Galatians gets written and it gets sent to them, He's a part of the, the church that received that letter. So he's a childhood recipient of Galatians. And then in Romans and 1 Corinthians, he's not a co-author and he's not a recipient, but he is mentioned in both of them. Uh, Paul, in speaking to the Romans, calls Timothy his fellow worker in, in Romans 16.21 and also in 1 Corinthians 16.10. He's the fellow worker in the, in the, uh, uh, to the Lord. He's also called Paul's, uh, Paul's beloved and faithful child in the Lord in 1 Corinthians 4.17, that uh, not only is he a brother and a co-worker, but he is very tender in Paul's estimation. 
Um, the only one really, the only two, Ephesians and, and Titus, uh, of all of Paul's 13 letters, I don't count Hebrews as Pauline, so the 13 Pauline letters, the only two that we say have no connection to Timothy, and I think even then I can quibble. Even then I can split, uh, split hairs or pick nits or whatever you want to do. Um, Ephesians has no explicit references to Timothy, but he pastored there for some time. All right? And, I, and so you want to talk about no connections to Timothy. Are you kidding me? Uh, he must have had incredible connections with Ephesians. I bet you he preached it. He absolutely preached it once he became the pastor there. Plus, the, not to mention the fact that Ephesians is a sister letter to Colossians, and Timothy is a co-author of Colossians. So when he arrived at, at Ephesus to pastor that church, uh, no doubt in my mind that he, uh, he majored in the, the Ephesian doctrine and taught it to them significantly. He undoubtedly preached from this epistle. And then ultimately, only in Titus is there no reference to Timothy and uh, really no real connections other than the fact that they were seminary students together. They traveled with the Apostle Paul. Uh, I think Timothy was biologically younger, but he was more advanced in his training. And not to knock on Titus or anything, but in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Timothy is my only student I can send to you right now that has a genuine concern for your welfare. And uh, no one else was equipped to, to shepherd like Timothy. He said all the rest of them, they, they set their mind on earthly things. All the rest of them, uh, they don't have, I don't want to misquote it here, but in, in Philippians 2, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And so, you know, that, that encompasses uh, Aristarchus and, and Titus and Luke and however many other companions that were with Paul during the time of his composition of, uh, of Philippians. And so uh, Titus is, is uh, a separate epistle. And, and largely it's parallel to 1 Timothy anyway, so there would be no need for Timothy to have a reference in that, in that particular book. All right. Also to show you how significant it is having Timothy as a co-author, Paul barely even had co-authors, okay? Um, with the exception of, uh, of uh, Sylvanus and Sosthenes, Paul was not big on co-authors, Okay. Uh, Sylvanus was an additional co-author. He formed the third co-author of First Timothy, First uh, Thessalonians, and Second Thessalonians. Um, and then Sosthenes is the only other co-author in all of Paul's correspondence, listed as the co-author for First Corinthians. All right, some of the details there. Paul wrote solo in six out of his thirteen epistles: Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and then of course the three pastoral epistles: First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. It makes no sense to have a co-author for a pastoral epistle, really. And so it's it's natural then that first, second Timothy and Titus, that those are solo compositions. But then Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, that grabs my attention because those, you know, those books, to me, those books form the core of, of Pauline theology, of, of church age doctrine. I think once you get grounded in the, in the, if we use John 13 through 17 as our curriculum for discipleship, uh, then what do you do beyond that? Once you've made a disciple and you've got someone that's grounded as a disciple, where do you take them next after John 13 through 17? I, I say you take them to, Rome, to Galatians, to Romans, and to uh, Ephesians as far as that goes. All right. Point two then. All that's review. We, we tackled all that already. And uh, clearly we taught it so well that there was no questions whatsoever related to uh, any of that. We've got to talk about slavery, though. And uh, that's what we're going to deal with here tonight. 
this slavery mindset, all right? And I think it's interesting. Um, Circumstances did not drive his thinking. We can surrender to our circumstances and and fall into a woe-is-me mentality. But if we're going to develop a mindset, we want to develop the mindset that, that the Scriptures would have for us to develop. And, and as, as I said uh, a few weeks ago in the introduction, Philippians is a book about mindsets, okay? That the number one common theme in Philippians is rejoice. The number two theme in Philippians is think. Think this way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, which is think Christ's thinking, okay? And so in the mode in which he thought, we're to think. We're to develop that mindset, and uh, so we have mindsets. And right away we realize that the mindset here is the mindset uh, set of slavery. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. And the word bondservant there is confusing sometimes because they uh, think as well as less harsh than, it's less harsh than uh, uh, slave, right? And, and there's some kind of an artificial description of that that is it's 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 goofy the word is doulos the word is slave just use the word slave okay and um in the aspects there uh because that's what we're talking about here paul is a slave of jesus christ timothy is a slave of jesus christ and uh, they were bought with a price they do not they are not their own they are here to glorify god in their bodies and this is the mindset that i think we want to deal with when we talk about slavery In fact, three out of Paul's 13 salutations include uh, this slave mindset. Romans, Philippians, and Titus. In those three epistles, uh, Paul refers to himself as as a doulos of Jesus Christ. Um, Paul uh, also cites his apostolic gift in ministry in nine out of his 13 salutations. And so, again, just kind of comparing the introduction here to the other uh, 12 uh, Pauline salutations. Uh, this is one of four where he does not call himself an apostle. So we discussed that. Uh, the, the other ones being Philemon, right? Where he very deliberately doesn't use apostle because he's trying to appeal to Philemon as a brother, just simply as an older brother to a younger brother, an old man to a young man, and, and encouraging him to do the right thing for his own priesthood in his own volition. And he says, I've got enough confidence to order you to do what is proper, but for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you as Paul the older man. Okay? And so that may make sense, that the purpose of Philemon, he would avoid the apostolic office. Uh, but then the other three uses, uh, the only other cases uh, where he avoids the apostolic office are all to the Macedonian churches. First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, and Philippians. When he's writing to a Macedonian church, there was never a, a, a need or a desire or uh, any occasion to stress Paul an apostle at, at any point. And I think that's significant. All right, so for tonight, we've got to talk about doulos, okay? Because there's lots of words for serving and servant. There's lots of words. Uh, not every servant is a slave. Um, and not every slave technically is a servant either, for that matter. Um, in, in the Roman world, slaves could be entrusted with high, high positions as physicians, as doctors, as, as tutors um, in, in different capacities. They, they could occupy trades and, and professional responsibilities. 
they wouldn't view themselves as servants. The only difference was their slavery estate was one of citizenship uh, or lack thereof. It was one of ownership that uh, they themselves were owned by somebody else. And that's what it means to be a slave is that you don't own you. Okay? And that's, uh, that's what it is. It's what it has been since the ancient world. That's what it is in modern times. In many places around this world, slavery still exists. Okay? Typically in Muslim realms of the world. Um, but there we have it. All right, the word is doulos. D-O-U-L-O-S. D-O-U-L-O-S. And I love this because you can, even if you don't read Greek, it looks like doulos, doesn't it? Doesn't the D look kind of like a casual D? Kind of angled off there. The O looks like an O. The U looks like a U. Okay, the lambda might be the strangest of the A. Maybe the lambda doesn't look like an L. It looks like an L with a kickstand. Okay, and so it's leaned over a little bit. The Omicron looks like an O, and then the, the S looks like an S. Right, the final sigma looks a lot like the English S. Anyway, do loss. 1401 is the Strong's number. Has 126 uses in the New Testament. So, uh, yeah, the Bible says a lot about slaves. Okay? 126 uses. That's a lot in the New Testament usage. Uh, Variously rendered slave and bondservant, and I can't explain why. There's no rhyme nor reason for why. And although I've read some theories and I've read some ideas, uh, but uh, most of those theories don't hold up when you scrutinize it, when you take a look at it. Okay? Uh, I showed you the color wheel, I think. You can bring that up again. This is the fun stuff that you can do. Uh, Philippians 1, 1. All right. Make it large enough for the back row commandos. All right. Bond servants. And... Here's your doulos lemma, and here's your word study. The um, Again, it's visual. I'm a visual kind of guy. Um, I can look at a picture and, and learn a lot just by staring at it. Uh, but, I mean, there it is, okay? Doulos, and here's how it's translated. Slave. In 98 out of 126 uses, right? It's slave. 98 times. It's slave. Well, that's overwhelming. I get that. Well, what's up with these other times? Bondservant. 23 times it's rendered bondservant. But it's hard to understand why sometimes. All right. Um, Luke 2.29, Acts 4.29, Acts 16.17. Really? Okay. Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Well, why is it rendered bondservant in Romans 1 1 and it's rendered slave, uh, it's rendered bondservant in uh, Philippians 1 1? See, there it is. Why are we doing this? Anyway, so there's the uses there. Someone smarter than me can figure it out and explain it to me someday. And then uh, you got slave, you got bondservant. Let's combine those two. Let's call it bond slave. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's the happy medium. We'll just kind of make both groups happy and call it bond slave. Well, uh, four times that shows up. And then one strange use in Revelation 10, 7, uh, he preached to his servants, the prophets. He preached to his douloi, his slaves, the prophets. 
And um, for whatever reason, the, the translators weren't comfortable calling prophets slaves, so they called them servants, even though in Greek they were called douloi, doulos, right? So in any event. The, uh, by the way, this color wheel is fully um, independent. If you prefer to do the, the Holman instead of the New American Standard, it'll redraw the color wheel for you. And it'll show you, here's, here's what the Holman does with doulos, okay? And Holman has a whole lot more slaves than, than New American Standard. 122, look at that. So it's only those three uses where it keeps servant and uh, only this one strange time that it renders male and female slaves in those days. All right. I collect no royalties from the Logos Bible Software Company. All right. So uh, if you if you choose to purchase the software and make use of it, uh, you will share in my enthusiasm, and uh, and I am not profiting from uh, this. Is not a paid commercial endorsement. All right. Now uh, there is a, a good article in the TLNT, and there's a longer uh, entry in the LBD, and I didn't forget to make those links, so we'll just make them up. Let me read this to you tonight, and we'll get a sense for what a doulos is in the theological lexicon of the New Testament. As long as I got this open, there it is. It's another way of getting there. Again, make it large enough. Doulos. Now, it's interesting, this, this lexicon um, provides, it's more than just here's the word and here's what it means. It actually develops a theological definition and it walks you through a survey of the scriptures. It shows you comparative literature and other aspects. Um, this is by a, a French guy named Speak, uh, who I've learned to appreciate even if he is French. The, uh, the language, the uh, lexical information that he provides here. And so you see across the top, you see the term doulos, along with some synonyms, along with some other Greek expressions that are largely synonymous or related, right? The oiketes, the oikeos, the mystheos, the mystotas, those other terms. Um, and it kind of gives you shades of distinction to be found. An oikos or an oiketes might be a house slave, a house servant, uh, the domestic servant, see, as opposed to somebody in the mines or the fields or rowing a ship, something like that. Um, even a term for a family member or a, a mystheos is a paid worker, okay? Somebody who's just in it for the pay. For the pay. And so they're a, they're a worker, they're a, a laborer, a hired laborer, right? And Jesus preaches about that when he says there's a difference between a shepherd and a hired worker. The guy that's just in it for the money is a hired worker, is a mystheos, okay? A salaried domestic servant. And I think I mentioned a week ago, we... we we, we lose sight of that in, because of our position in the modern world, right? We, we're, we're used to management and labor disputes, okay? We're used to paid wa- wages being, you know, uh, you're, you're fighting for higher wages and whatever. But um, in the ancient world, you're competing against uh, slaves that don't get paid. And so that makes it rough for you if you're, if you're willing to, you know, work for some money and the, the employer's going to say, why would I pay you? I'll just buy a slave, Okay. And you talk about a, a, a damaged job market for, <laughs> for different things. And so uh, really a mystheos um, 
it was hard to get work on that basis unless you were so in demand as a skilled tradesman, a, a carpenter, or some other professional that could demand that kind of a wage. Um, it was a different world back then. All right. The next section of the lexicon lists um, other resources. And so if you're familiar with uh, Kittle, uh, the, well, here's the Strong's number, right? And so that opens up Strong's. And then here's Kittle, Theological Dictionary. And here's the Exegetical Dictionary. And here's uh, Moulton and Milligan. Moulton and Milligan tracked uh, papyri and graffiti. And he, if, if a word was used on graffiti that they found in an archaeology dig, that someone had scrolled the word doulos on a wall somewhere, or someone had, or the word doulos showed up on a, on a, on a cemetery inscription. See, Moulton and Milligan tracks the graffiti in the papyri uses, uh, Lawanita lexicon, Blast de Brunner and Funk. Uh, here's BDAG and BADG and these other lexicons. Anyway, very useful in that regard. It is wrong to translate doulos as servant, so obscuring its precise signification in the language of the first century. All right. You don't want to confuse it with a deacon, diakonos, that's also servant. You don't want to confuse it with a latruo, if you're going to be a, a, a religious servant or do a religious service. There's lots of different words for service. The doulos is the slave, the one who is owned by somebody else. In the beginning, before it came to be used for slaves, doulos was an adjective meaning unfree, as opposed to eleutheros, which meant free. So you had these antonyms, free and unfree, eleutheros and doulos. And then the adjective for unfree became the noun for a person who was unfree, a person who is a slave. So this dichotomy remained basic in the first century. And we have expressions, eta douloi, eta eleutheroi, whether free or slave. Gaius defines the principal legal distinction between persons as that of free and slave. Okay? It's not about racism, it's not about dehumanization, it's not about uh, the ugliness that we usually think of in slavery. It is purely a legal definition of who owns you. Do you own yourself or does somebody else own you? Purely a legal issue. Okay, The principal legal distinction. Further, among free men, uh, if you are a free citizen... Okay. Or you may not be a citizen, but you, you are free. Okay. Uh, the, uh, among free men, some are ingenuous, while others are manumitted. In other words, you were born a free man, or you were born a slave and later became emancipated. You became a free man. The ingenii are those who were born free. The manumitted are those who are freed from servitude by a legal proceeding. Again, it's a legal proceeding. Any change of station is a legal proceeding. Same thing with immigration. It's a legal proceeding, that there are procedures and things that are followed. The word slave refers above all to legal status, that is, uh, object of property. Latin is res mancipi. To be a slave is to be attached to a master. The Greek word is despotes or despot. Um, And there's a link of subjection. You are the slave of that which dominates you. And so for us, being slaves of Jesus Christ is not at all insulting. In fact, the prestige among the slaves is who's your master. And the higher ranked your master, the, the higher prestige you have as a slave. You're, you're better off being a slave of Caesar rather than a slave of, of uh, Brutus, okay, or what have you. Uh, because as, as they have their political uh, ups and downs, uh, the slaves also, okay, and uh, and uh, you want you want to be a slave of the winner, not the loser, in uh, in a civil war. All right. 
a slave is, and so think about it. We didn't buy ourselves out of the, the slave market of sin, right? Jesus Christ bought us. Right? Technically, the Father bought us with the blood of His Son. And so who do we now belong to? We're slaves of, of Jesus Christ and God the Father. A slave is an article of personal property that one buys, sells, leases, gives, or bequeaths. One that can be possessed jointly. You know, you could have a, a timeshare. Okay? True story. Like a vacation rental or something. Um, if you want more on this, uh, around 100 AD, a slave belongs in common to three brothers. And uh, this is recorded in um, the secular records here. Actually, it's recorded in Jewish records in the, in the Talmud. Um, a slave is shared between five owners in this reference here. Uh, in the third century, a slave belongs in common to a brother and a sister coming from the father's estate, which remains undivided. All right. And even in secular records, even, even in, to the pagans who had no love for the Scriptures, uh, they had already formulated an axiom on a psychological level that uh, a slave cannot serve two masters. <laughs> and they created this expression, a slave of two masters is at any given moment no one's slave. Okay? And you might imagine, just on a secular level, uh, different aspects there. You ever had uh, children play off one parent against the other parent? Well, mom said this. Oh, well, dad said that, and and you know, and if they if they play both of them off successfully for long enough, they can obey neither one and just do what they want to do, and so carry it now to the realm of slavery. And if you're uh, owned by multiple masters, such a thing can happen. All right, a slave can serve as a pledge or a mortgage. By the way, you can. It becomes collateral because there's value, economic value when, when uh, in in terms of that person's work and 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 service. Is a uh, race or a soma that is a male or female slave? Of course, the Bible speaks of that as well. Grouped with the animals, part of the wealth records, as among those that are hupo zugon, that is under the yoke, under the yoke. Okay. This nuance of abjection is evoked by the Morphe Dulu of the Son of God incarnate. Okay? That is, I'm reading right here, the Morphe Dulu. He emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos. And, and that's the kenosis. Okay? He didn't take the form of a king. He didn't take the form of a rich guy. He didn't take the form of a conqueror or a lord. He took the form of a doulos. All right? He had to become the lowest of the low. On the, on the socioeconomic status, it, it is not possible to get lower than not owning yourself. All right? And that's the point. That's the entire point of, uh, of this. So given that Christians are bought and paid for by the Lord, St. Paul, the former rabbi, i.e. theologian, jurist, uh, transposes this notion of servitude into the supernatural order accentuating above all the nuance of the Lord's radical seizure of the believer, the latter being in submission to the discretionary will of his master, becomes essentially a dependent individual. You know, if, uh, if he feeds you, you eat. If he doesn't feed you, what do you do? Okay? 
Uh, he clothes you. He, he, has every, every, he has absolute sovereign despotism over your existence. All right? And that's our reality in Christ. Um, furthermore, while only free men and freedmen, you see the difference there? Free men and freedmen, okay? Those born free and those who became free later. Uh, only free men and freedmen enjoy the right to the tria nomina. You're familiar with the Roman naming conventions? Gaius, Julius, Caesar, how you have the praenomen, the, the cognomen, you have the, the names there that are assigned. A slave can't have that. A slave can't have the, tri, the, 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 the three names, the tria nomina. The slave bears only the cognomen specified by the use of the genitive of his owner's name. Okay? Some of that comes up in Philippians, by the way. Those that are of Caesar's household. Those are the slaves that belong to Caesar. There's other households that are mentioned in Romans. There's other households that are mentioned in the New Testament. And it's a company of slaves that belong to that person. All right. Uh, let's see. There's often joined a title designating the job that he does for his master. So, oikonomos, if he's the steward, dispensator, medicus, if he's the personal doctor of, uh, of somebody, okay? Uh, Belnarius, I forget what that one is. I looked it up, uh, etc. So, when St. Paul officially presents himself as apostle, slave of Jesus Christ, he proclaims that he belongs exclusively and totally, not to any emperor here below, but to the Lord of heaven and earth, who owns all rights to him. More precisely, he defines himself, his existence, his mission, all his activities in terms of Christ, his master. You know, if you don't even own yourself, what aspirations do you have? What dreams, what goals, what, what is your purpose in life? You know, it is inescapably linked to your master, to your despotes. And that's uh, Paul's joyous confession here. Um, in fact, if the slave is the object of a real right, the Dominica potestas, then he himself has no legal status as a person. And that goes into some other facets of the Roman law. He's entitled to no rights, servile caput nullum. Anyway, other Latin expressions. It is the owner of the slave who profits from their activity, who has the right to the fruit of their labor. So everything they do doesn't belong to them. If they produced anything, that production is not theirs. The production belongs to the despotes, to the master. Their opera or his, just as the fruit of a tree, belongs to the owner of a tree. Okay? And this is extraordinary. This, this comes down to ownership. And ownership, by the way, goes all the way back to Genesis. The, the idea of ownership. Who owns what? Who has sovereignty of what? When Adam was given the responsibility to name the animals, what does that tell you? All right, they didn't name themselves. The sovereignty comes as you, as you assign the names. Anyway, um, it, the, the insanity of this world has gotten so lost in terms of what constitutes ownership that it, it's, sometimes it's even impossible to define thou shalt not steal. Right? Because that kind of goes away now if, if well, you, it shouldn't be yours anyway. We should all just share it. Then 
there's no such thing as ownership then. And then it's all just communal. It's all, uh, it's all collective, okay? And, uh, and that's all in total defiance of sovereignty. And thou shalt not steal. Or even be, be bigger than that. How about thou shalt not covet? <laughs> because what's the hard attitude that thinks that somebody has more than they need or somebody has too much or somebody has more than I do and it's not fair? Okay? It comes down to coveting, which leads to stealing, which uh, gets us where we are today. <laughs> All right. So uh, the fruit of a tree belongs to the owner of the tree. Say. And it makes sense. Uh, until satanic insanity comes in, and then there's pride, and there's greed, and there's there's uh, the, the greed isn't in the, the 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 owners. The greed is in the people that aren't entitled to what they think they're entitled to. See, which is typically labor unions, right? Workers who say this company belongs to us. We're the workers. We produce value, and fail to realize the owner is the owner, and, and you're not producing value other than what, what he's paying you to produce. And if somebody else produces value better than you, then, then they're going to get the job and you're going to lose the job. And, and you don't produce value because it's a liability based on what it costs to, pay, to use you. Okay? If a robot does it better than you, guess what? All right. Wow, there's a whole series right there on biblical economics. Okay? Because the rebellion against authority is what it's all about. Whether you're talking labor against management, whether you're talking about worker versus owner, whether you're talking about feminists against the patriarchy, or you're talking about children against the parents, or or you're talking about borders, whatever. Every single dispute in our time is satanically motivated attack on the authority of God. If you want to boil it down in that way. All right, back to this French guy. Um, the fruit of a tree belongs to the owner of a tree. Thus the master will gather the increase on his goods due to the industry of his douloi. Remember this story in Matthew 25? Um, he sends the slaves and, um, you know, he gave them the talents that were supposed to trade with them. It all belongs to him, okay? Or in another case, he sends his slaves and they abuse them, they mistreated them, they beat them, they killed them. And then he said, well, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect my son. And they treat, treated him worse of all. They felt if they could murder the heir, then they could seize possession of the property. All right. The apostle carrying out his ministry expects no salary. And the douloi archaeoi recognize that they are only slaves whose only purpose in life is to carry out uh, that which they are commanded to do. All I've done is that which I've com- been commanded to do, the rulers of the slaves. Um, it is true that slavery is an institution which has as its essential goal to make available to one person the activities of other persons. That's the whole purpose why you make a slave. Okay, And, and again, in the ancient world, this was typically done through warfare. You conquer a Gaulish tribe, and you kill the Gaulish men because you don't want the warriors coming back and fighting again. And the women and the children become the slaves. And you take them back to Rome or you take them wherever and they become the labor. They become the, the unpaid labor of, uh, of your culture. Um, 
So making available to one person the activities of other persons. That's the definition. Somebody else's labor. If you're entitled to somebody else's labor, why are you entitled to somebody else's labor? What is your claim on them and their labor? Is it ownership? Is it, is it a free exchange that you have contracted with them? Your dollars for their work? Or is it not voluntary? Is it involuntary? Do you own them? All right. Anyway, this too, by the way, is part of what I think gets lost with um, the government providing uh, medical services. They don't own the labor of the doctors. Telling the doctors who to serve or how to serve or how to work or where to work, that's not legal since the 14th Amendment. But there we go. All right. Didn't know I was going to get so political tonight. Um, so, the slave is a worker. A link attaches the due loss to his function. A slave is a worker or a living tool. And his most important role is carrying out his task to the profit of his master. Say, if your hammer breaks and you can't hammer nails anymore, what do you do with a hammer? Is there any point to keeping it around? Okay. And this is why the, the institution itself is so ripe to degradation and dehumanization and, and, and the, 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 the ugliness of what sinners can do. Because if it, just like you wouldn't keep a broken hammer around, what are you going to do with a broken slave? What are you going to do with someone that's too old to dig in the mines anymore or, or what have you? See, it's, it's, it's horrendous. All right. The... Um, his most important role is carrying out the task to the profit of his master. Okay? Now what's ugly in, in carnality in human terms, though, think of, again, put it back into the sanctified use of us as bondservants of Jesus Christ. Because he is not going to abuse his, his slaves. He's not going to throw them away when they're, when they're broken. Okay? He heals them when they're broken. It's a beautiful thing. So the nuance can be seen in the declaration of the Virgin Mary, behold the doulos, the doule, feminine, the doule of the Lord. That's uh, the Luke reference to the, the bondservant of the Lord. In the expression, his douloi, the prophets, we looked at that. In the text of the synoptics, they evoke the deeds of slaves, each to his own work. In the Pauline meaning of the verb douluo, to complete a task, to consecrate oneself to a work, to devote oneself to a master. You see, it's, 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 it's more than just working. That's ergates, it's ergazo. It's more than working. It is serving the master that you are subject to. That is who you are slaving away for. Not to, you know, accomplish a task. Okay? Yes, maybe you're harvest, maybe you're hoeing a field, maybe you're digging a mine, maybe you're, you're uh, building something, whatever you're doing. The work is not what's stressed. It's the service to the person that, uh, whom you are attached. So, um, to complete a task, to consecrate oneself to a work, to devote oneself to a master. Finally, in the ethic of servitude, urging Christian slaves to not only obey their master, but to serve willingly. And this comes up in Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Timothy. Um, nowhere in the New Testament is it commanded for Christians to free their slaves or for Christian slaves to escape from their masters or any such thing. It says, if you are a Christian slave, you better work for your master as if he is Jesus Christ himself. And if you are a Christian slave owner, then you better treat your slave as if he's Jesus Christ himself. That we still apply the agape love one to another, even if 
I happen to be free and a citizen and, and my brother happens to be unfree and a, and a non-citizen, even a non-person that is property as a slave, okay? Because in Christ there is no male nor female, there is no bond nor free, there is no Greek, uh, Jew or, or Gentile. In Christ we are, the, the, the slave is the Lord's free man. And we'll see that. This, this all comes up, I think, in this. Uh, but again, Ephesians 6, 5, there's a context to this. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. See, they're just fleshly masters. <laughs> you know, they're just human masters. Uh, with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Okay? I've done this. I've had, I've had bosses that, that hated me, and I had to go to work every night thinking, that's Jesus Christ. And I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, man, I had lesbian, anti-Christian. They hated men. They hated Christians. They hated heterosexuals. They hated um, three or four other things. And I was all six of them. Okay. <laughs> they hated, I was just in an ugly, ugly frame of mind. And I qualified for all six categories of hate. And she was my boss. Okay. And I went to work thinking that's Jesus Christ. And uh, that's why I have to serve. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render good uh, will, with good will, render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. It goes on then to say, and masters, do the same thing to them. Do the same thing to them. That is, serve them as unto the Lord. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Okay? All right, so there's the application there. Uh, Slaves are a very diverse lot, from laborers to philosophers, from farmers to physicians. In the imperial administration, the most capable could advance. The job of pregustator led to the post of triclinearchia, I'm sorry, my Latin is horrible. Um, that of vesitor to procurator, etc. Even at the heart of the domestic setting, there is a hierarchy. The master sets the faithful and prudent and do loss over all his household. You know, you think about Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt, and Potiphar put him at his right hand and gave him everything in his household except for Mrs. Potiphar, okay? And said, You are the manager of all of this. He was the steward of, of, of the household. The slave directs and oversees the subordinate personnel and can come to occupy the highest posts. The ideal is liberation, and if it is Christ who liberates the slaves from sin, making each son of God the Lord's free man. That's 1 Corinthians 7.22. He who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. It's the great equalizer when you become born again. In a way, Ketase is most often a slave as well, though in many texts it's not possible to say with certainty. This term is sometimes substituted for doulos as being less dishonorable as in the epitaph for an Ethiopian slave. Uh, it is to the Decurian Palace, works superintendent of Antinoe, that the God led me as a Waketase from the land of Ethiopia. Um, the etymology of the Oikos, that's the word for house, and so the connection of house with a uh, 
with a slave would make the, uh, the domestic type slave instead of the field or the mines or rowing a ship in the Roman galley, uh, galleons. Wake attire people in service, and we can probably get past the rest of this. Members of the same family. Um, I think sometimes it became an endearment, you know, even to this day. Aren't there some disparaging marital expressions like the old ball and chain? Okay, well, where does that come from? I think it comes from people with sin natures and a twisted sense of humor. Anyway, among the domestics attached to a household, some are salaried, called the mystios. Uh, these workers hired when there is work and discharged when they are no longer needed or treated without consideration. These are workers for hire whose existence is tantamount to servitude, but they can no more properly be called servants than can day workers who hire themselves out to some concern to tend a flock or to till a field. Emphasis is always on their compensation, and uh, so they've been given their wages at the end of the day. Goodbye. See you. Have a nice life. Maybe it'll be work tomorrow, maybe not. Don't owe you anything. Um, emphasis is always on their compensation and they accordingly have nothing in common with the douloi. The ergates, the worker, has a right to his food. Interesting. The, the worker has a right to his food. The doulos, does he have a right? Curiously enough, he does not. Okay, but it's a foolish master who doesn't feed his, his slave. Anyway, so that's the article there. Um, five minutes left. The, the Lexham Bible Dictionary, so I can bring that up. The Lexham Bible Dictionary as well. So that's the linguistic study as far as uh, LBD goes. Slave. Here we go. Oh, what happened there? One of these days I'm going to learn how to use this. Here we go. Um, and, and I think I can PDF this as well if you want a printed copy of this. The practice of one person owning another as property or one person owing a debt to another and repaying that debt via their labor. Uh, debt slavery, very common. Okay? And that was usually for a fixed period of time until such time as the debts were paid off. Often it wasn't even yourself. Okay? Things get kind of tight. You got a spare kids laying around. Okay? Children, I'm honest, ch- children were sold off into debt slavery. Okay? And they finished their, their contract, uh, or, you know, um, and it helped mom and dad pay off their, their debts. Obviously, in the Jewish world, they had a jubilee, and they had, uh, they had a, a, a redemption okay, that was not available in the, in the Gentile world. Uh, found in the ancient Near East, the Greco-Roman world, and the Old and New Testaments, no single description of slavery fits the various forms it took in the ancient world. However, it was quite different from the slavery practiced in the West during the 18th and 19th centuries. In some ways, yes, I agree with that statement. In other ways, no. Okay, That uh, the modern... Slavery was identical to that which was practiced in the ancient world. It was just done on a more industrial scale. And even that's debatable. All right. Uh, Again, vocabulary, most common terms refer to both slaves and servants. A frequent term is derived from the verb to work. The Hebrew is gaved, okay? 
Um, it does not convey anything negative or derogatory uh, that it does uh, in Greek usage outside the Bible. Uh, distinction made between an Israelite and a non-Israelite slave. The same vocabulary is used in, with both, but the legal status under Mosaic law was different. Also, a slave could be owned by the state. Uh, you know, publicly owned slaves. Not just individuals owning slaves, but imagine the slaves that were the property of the state of Texas or the state of uh, uh, you know, Rome or what have you. Such publicly owned slaves in Athens who served as the police force. Okay. I mean, yeah, why pay, why pay for a police department if uh, you can assign you know, a squad or a, a group of uh, slaves there? Anyway, does this boggle the mind sometimes? I mean, I feel like, wow, is this the same planet? You, know? you can look at the map and say it was the same geography, but like uh, something else. Um, slavery could take the form of debt slavery in which people sold themselves or their children. Uh, the majority of slaves are prisoners of war sold into slavery like the conquest of Gaul. Man, Caesar got so rich selling all those slaves, all those Gaulish slaves. Um, slaves in state-owned mines worked under inhumane conditions and had a short life expectancy. Many household slaves, on the other hand, fared better. Um, in, denoting, in addition to denoting a person's legal status or identity, the term slave also denotes a power relationship between persons. Patterson defines slavery as social death, arguing that an enslaved person was alienated from all rights or claims of birth and ceased to belong in his own right to any legitimate social order. This was in a very stratified society that, that Rome was, okay? Completely at odds with what we would consider today in terms of human rights and, and civil rights. Um, he further states slavery is a permanent violation, domination of natally alienated and generally dishonored persons. Wow, that's a statement. Um, Culberson criticizes that definition and he presents an alternative. Um, better understood in the context of households, which would account for the diverse slave experiences. And um, yeah, beyond torture, rape, and death. Okay, for those that are captured in battle and, and abused. Uh, but for those that are born in the house, become household members. And so there is protection, participation, and influence in institutional affairs. Anyway, I'm out of time. Um, I probably won't get back to this again on Sunday. So if you want a copy of this, let me know. I'll, I'll make a PDF out of it and email it to you. If, uh, if I change my mind, if I think there's more that's worth reading here, we'll do that Sunday morning and, and then move on to the next expression because bond servants of Jesus Christ to the saints, we need to understand our sanctification, all right, how we're set apart, how we're made righteous, we're made holy in the unfolding plan of God. So Father, I thank you for this study, I thank you for um, your truth, and I pray that you would be at work, that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our understanding, Father, that we will understand these realities for what they were, and what they are now, I thank you for the grace that we have in, uh, in Christ, Father, and the blessings that we have to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.